Let's just bow our heads and let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for having been with us throughout this whole series of meetings, the 20 meetings, including tonight. We can't help but marvel at how wonderful a God you are and how you've placed everything in your word in such a harmonious way so that there's no excuse for us not going to heaven and not living on the new earth uh, that you are going to prepare for your people. We ask, Lord, that as we study about our eternal home, that you will help us feel homesick. Homesick for heaven and homesick for the new earth, homesick for Jesus. We thank you for hearing our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to study about our eternal home. Let's start at the very top of the lesson. In this, our last lesson, we will study about the eternal home which Jesus is preparing for those who love him. Revelation 21 and 22 stand in contrast to the rest of the book. The first 19 chapters of Revelation describe a world infected by the deadly virus of sin. It is a world of pain, sorrow, suffering, and death. It is a place where God's people have no lasting home. As we saw in our last lesson, the world will even become an inhospitable wilderness as a result of the seven last plagues. But better days are coming. Jesus is preparing an everlasting home for his people, which is beyond our wildest imagination. Let's study together about our eternal home. The first section deals with pilgrims on the move. The great heroes of faith from Abel to Abraham confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I like those expressions, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were seeking a what? A homeland. In other words, this earth was not home. They were seeking a homeland. They desired a better... A better what? A better heavenly country. There you go. See, I don't always quote it exactly the way it is in the Bible. We have to use our imagination a little bit. But uh, they desired a better heavenly country. In other words, they weren't happy with, with this earth this earth was not their home. They were strangers and they were pilgrims. They were just passing through. Number two, because these heroes sought a better country, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, which has what? Foundations. How many foundations? Twelve foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Did Abraham look, to, look forward to the reestablishing of the earthly Jerusalem? Did these heroes look forward to inheriting the little land of Canaan with that earthly Jerusalem? Absolutely not. They looked for a much greater Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, whose builder and maker is God, not David. Number three, right now, our what? Our names are what? Registered in heaven. What does that mean? It means that we are citizens where? In heaven, because our names are written there. See, the heavenly INS has our names there. So that when we get to the city, Jesus will say, you are a citizen. You can come in. So right now, our names are registered in heaven. The Apostle Paul explains that our, what? Our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice our names are written there. Our citizenship is there. Let's go to number four. The Apostle Paul explains that we have what? We have here... No what? Continuing, or as the old King James says, no lasting city. But we have, but we what? We seek the one to come. In other words, in this world, we have no city that we can call home. 
Now let's read the very important note. God's true children have no citizenship on earth. They are pilgrims on the way to heaven. Their citizenship was once in the city of Babylon, but they renounced their citizenship there to become citizens of the New Jerusalem. At least I hope that's what we've done. If we've come out of Babylon, uh, we must renounce our citizenship in Babylon. We must say, don't want to be a citizen there anymore. They have left the world behind with its lusts and are marching to Zion. I love that song. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're much marching upward to Zion, that beautiful city of God. This can be illustrated with the history of Israel. They left Egypt and became pilgrims on their way to what? To Canaan. They were in transition. They no longer had citizenship in Egypt and they had not arrived yet in Canaan. They lived in transitory tents. No permanent buildings, tents. Even the sanctuary was a tent. But when they entered Canaan, they settled in the land and built permanent homes of stone. God's temple, built by Solomon, then became a permanent structure. The land, actually the Feast of Tabernacles, commemorated the end of the wilderness wanderers. You know what the Israelites would do in the Feast of Tabernacles is every male, 12 years and older, was required to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles lasted eight days. They left their homes and they went to the city of Jerusalem. And then after eight days of celebration, they went back to their permanent homes. You know, this will be fulfilled when God's people will leave this planet and go to heaven for the Feast of Tabernacles. And then Jesus will bring his people back to planet Earth and we will live here in our permanent home. Isn't that beautiful? Now, people lived in booths made of branches for eight days. In other words, provisional homes that commemorated the wilderness wanderings. And then they went back to their permanent homes. This illustrates the fact that God's people will go to heaven to live there temporarily and then will return to their permanent uh, home after the thousand years. Now let's talk a little bit about the heavenly Jerusalem. Now it becomes very obvious as we look at Revelation that the new Jerusalem is in contrast to Babylon. You see, Babylon is a city of sin. It's a city of corruption. It's a city of death. It's a city that adorns itself. It's a city of darkness. Whereas the New Jerusalem is a city of holiness, a city of life, a city of incorruption, a city that is not a harlot, a city that is married to Jesus Christ, a city of light. Now, I'd like to compare two passages. These are not in the lesson. You might want to write them in. Revelation chapter 17 and verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 17 and verses 1 to 3. Here we have a description of Babylon. And then I want you to remember the details because we're going to read a passage that speaks about the New Jerusalem. And it's going to be in stark contrast to Babylon. It says in Revelation 17 verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 21. And let's read verses 9 and 10. And immediately you're going to see several parallels. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Interesting. Same, same idea. Filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come! Is that what he said in Revelation 17? Yes. Come! I will show you 
He said, I'm going to show you the harlot. But now he says, I will show you the bride. The lamb's wife. And so he carried me away in the spirit, not to the wilderness, but to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city. Babylon is also called the great city, isn't it? Showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. In other words, Babylon represents everything that is bad, and Jerusalem represents everything that is good. And that's why God calls us to come out of Babylon, where error is taught, where darkness is followed, where church and state are mixed, where a false day of worship is kept, where people believe that the dead aren't dead, but that the soul is immortal and lives on after death, where it's believed that we're not now in the judgment, that the judgment takes place when you die. You see, God knows that in Babylon there is nothing good. And so he says, if you have learned the truth, you need to what? You need to come out. Don't try to reform it. It's irreformable. Come out of her, my people, and join as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now let's take a look at what the heavenly Jerusalem is like. Number one in our second section. The city where we have our citizenship is the new Jerusalem. We are told that in this city, God will dwell with us. And we shall be his people. God himself will be with us and be our God. Now, the story of the Bible is not us reaching up after God, but God reaching down to us. In Genesis chapter 3, God came looking for Adam and Eve. In John chapter 1, it says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it says that God will descend and he will dwell with us. So it's interesting that, it, that in all stages, in all stages of human history, it's God coming down. God came to the garden to speak to Adam and Eve. After they sin, he comes looking for them. When man falls into sin, Jesus comes and tabernacles among us. And ultimately, Jesus and his Father will dwell with us forever and ever. It is an awesome thought that God will transfer his headquarters from heaven to this earth. The new Jerusalem will become the capital of the universe and the king will dwell with us forever. What an honor and what a privilege. Number two, the city is said to be laid out as a square. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. In other words, it's not really a square. It's what? It's a cube. That's right. Now, do you know what was shaped as a cube in the Old Testament? It was the most holy place of the sanctuary. If you want to read that, that's found in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20, which means that the New Jerusalem is equivalent to what? To the most holy place of the sanctuary. By the way, the he heaven is much larger than, than just Jerusalem. There's more to heaven than the New Jerusalem. It's much bigger. Like in the New Earth, there's going to be much more than the New Jerusalem. There's going to be the whole earth besides. So really, the New Jerusalem is the equivalent of the most holy place of the sanctuary where God will dwell and where we will go to visit. In the Old Testament, the high priest only could enter the most holy place. But at the end of time, when the holy city descends, God's people, everyone, without any barrier, will be able to go into the very presence of God. Now, according to the Bible, the measurements of the city was 12 what? 12,000 furlongs, or as other versions say, 12,000 stadia. Now, I'm going to tell you how many 12,000 stadia are. 12,000 stadia is equivalent to 2,586,000 square yards, or, or yards, linear yards, actually. That's 2,586,000 yards. That's the length, the breadth, and the height. Each way, 2,586,000 yards. Uh, by the way, a stadia 
has about 215.5 yards, or a furlong, as it's called here in the New King James Version. And so uh, you would have to multiply 215.5 yards times 12,000. And that's how I got the figure, 2,586,000. Now, that's a pretty big place, isn't it? I think it's an awesome place. In fact, let's read the note. The city is actually a perfect cube, just like the most holy place of the Hebrew sanctuary. The city is 375 miles in length, breadth and height, and covers an area of about 140,625 square miles. This is equivalent to the sides of Virginia, District of Columbia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont combined. I would say that's a pretty good sized city, don't you? Don't you think? Is God expecting a lot of visitors? Oh, he must be expecting, if it's such a big city, if it's such a big place. Now let's go to number three. The city is made of pure gold. Notice it doesn't just say gold, it says pure gold, like clear what? Like clear glass. You see that John is kind of struggling to find words to describe what he's seen. See, that, that's the frustration of the prophet. The prophet is transported to heaven, and he's shown heavenly things, and he has to describe in earthly words what he saw in heaven. That's pretty difficult. So he says, uh, you know, like in chapter 15, he says, I saw a sea of glass, like a sea of glass, and it looked like it was mingled with fire. Well, the fact is, the reason why it's mingled with fire is because the glory of God shines in the sea of glass. And it's so crystal clear, it doesn't look like water. It looks like glass. And so, so John is struggling, and by the way, he describes this in human words, but um, it's going to be infinitely more beautiful and more spectacular than he can describe in human words. Um, so the gold is so bright and pure that it looks like what? Like glass, like crystal. The foundations of the city are composed of precious what? Of precious stones. And by the way... I did a little bit of research on those stones, and uh, those stones are all of the different colors of the rainbow. In other words, when the, when the light shines on the foundations, uh, the city's going to look like a rainbow. Let me just uh, mention those uh, very quickly. Uh, Chalcedony is, is a blue, like a heavenly blue. Um, Sardonyx is a red and white combined. Sardius is a deep red. Jasper is kind of like a color of a rainbow. Several different colors, kind of like a prism or like a diamond when the light shines on it. Chrysolite is gold colored. Burl is green, like the Pacific Ocean. Topaz is a like a transparent green. Chrysoprass is like a, a, a very light purple. Jacinth is a very bright violet color. Uh, sapphire is a, a blue, brilliant blue. And emerald, of course, is a dark green. And amethyst is a, uh, a very deep violet color. And so you have all of these beautiful colors that form the foundations of the city. And of course, on the foundations of the city, you have the names of whom? You have the names of the twelve apostles <laughs> the tribes are the doors you have them the foundations the name of the twelve apostles by the way is this city the city of all of the redeemed from all ages yes because the foundations have the names of the apostles and the doors have the names of the tribes all of God's people are going to be included in that city uh, not only um, the New Testament Christians or the Old Testament uh, literal Jews now let's go to number five each gate of the city was a pearl. Well, those must be some size pearls, huh? Uh, yes. <laughs> Have you ever seen a pearl? Real pearl. Oh, I'll tell you, it's so beautiful. You know, it's, it's kind of like a cream color, and it has the colors of the rainbow in it. Very, very beautiful. And every door is going to look like it's going to be a pearl according to Revelation. Let's read the note. Throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven 
the number which denotes God's perfection, has been predominant. But now the number 12 eclipses the number 7. All figures are 12 or multiples of 12. There are 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 foundations, 12 apostles, 12,000 furlongs, 144 cubits, 12 pearls, 12 kinds of fruit, 144,000. The New Jerusalem is the city of God, but it is also the city of the redeemed of all ages. And the number 12 describes the redeemed. Because in the Old Testament you have 12 tribes, and the New Testament you have 12 apostles. The, the 12 uh, sons of Jacob were the founders of Old Testament church, and the apostles of the New Testament were the founders of the New Testament church. In other words, the, the, even the number 7 has been eclipsed. And now the emphasis is that this is the metropolis of the city of God, of the people of God, from all ages, from the Old and from the New Testament. Number six, there will be a pure river of life, clear as crystal, not like Fresno water, which proceeds from the throne of God and the Lamb. The Holy Spirit invites everyone who thirsts to come and take the water of life freely. In other words, you don't have to pay for it. It's free. Number seven, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river is what? Is the tree of life, which produces a different fruit each month. Now, how can a tree be on both sides of the river? Well, the fact is that there, each side of the river has a trunk, and then the tree meets on top of the river. In other words, the tree of life is like a gigantic arch that goes across the river. Now, notice the note, very important. The usual word for tree in Revelation is dendron. Dendron. It's used in Revelation 7, 1, 8, 7, and 9, 4. But here, the word is hulon. This word means wood. And it is used to describe the cross of Christ. In Galatians 3.13 and 1 Peter 2.24, where it says that Jesus was hung on a tree. Does this perhaps mean that we will owe the privilege of eating from the tree of life to what Jesus did on the cross? Perhaps. Number eight. There are seven things the city will not have. No more what? See. And whether that's speaking literally or whether it's speaking in terms of the sea being the nations that are in turmoil and war, I don't think really makes that much difference because I don't think we're going to have the huge seas that we have now and I definitely know that we're not going to have the sea in the symbolic sense of the word. Number two, there will be no more what? No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there shall be no more, no more pain. Number three, the city has no temple in it. The city is the most holy place of the temple. And that's where God inhabits. There will be need, no need for what? For sun or moon. And so some people say, well, you know, how then can we keep the Sabbath? There's no sun, no moon. There's no months. There's no weekdays. The Bible specifically says that there will be no sun, no need for sun in the city. We have to read carefully. It says the city has no need of sun or moon. The city, not the new earth. Because there is going to be a weekly cycle in the new earth because we're going to keep the Sabbath. There must be a cycle of day and night. Number four, there will be no need for, oh, I already did this one, no need for the sun or the moon. Number five, there will be no night. How can there be night when the glory of God is all the time there. <laughs> there will be no night. And the gates will never be what? Whoa. Never be shut. Praise the Lord. No more genies. No more uh, gate openers. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There will be no thieves. So there's no reason to have uh, doors and locks and fences. None of, none of those things. Number six. Nothing which what? Which defiles shall enter there. And there will be no what? 
there will be no curse. Doesn't that sound like a nice place to live? Are you looking forward to living there? See, Babylon is everything bad. Babylon wants to settle in this world. See, Babylonians, they love this world. But, but according to the Bible, this world is not our permanent home. This world is passing away. And what the Bible means by that, it's disintegrating like a vapor. What's on this earth isn't real. The real things are the things that we can't see, as we'll notice a little bit later on in the lesson. Number nine, the city will have a cosmopolitan flavor. It will be transnational because there are people from every nation. It will be transgenerational, which means that the redeemed from all generations will be present there. And it will be multilingual. You know, this debate about what language you're going to speak in heaven. Um, you, uh, you know, I think probably it might be English. Because Americans can't learn any other language and the Lord's going to have mercy on them. <laughs> See, you got happy and then you got sad. <laughs> People from every nation, language group, and epoch will be there. John saw an innumerable multitude from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne of God. So you know what? If you can't get along with people from different nationalities and different races here, you're not going there. If you think that your race is superior to everybody else's race, forget it, folks. You're not going to be there because you're not going to be happy. So we need to remember that all of us belong to God's family and are equal in the sight of God. Yes. In other words, we have to learn how to live in heavenly society on earth now. Number 10. God promises that the former things will be, will pass away, and that he will make all things what? New. The new heavens and the new earth will not be an improvement of the old, but rather a totally new creation. Second Peter 3 explains that the earth and the works that are in it will melt with fervent heat. Then, after the earth is cleansed, God will make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, I'd like to deal just for a moment with a little translation problem that we have in Revelation 22 and verse 14. You'll find that most modern versions, if not all of them, translate Revelation 22 verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. Have you noticed that? Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have a right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. Uh, I don't believe that that is the proper translation of the verse. I believe that the translation, blessed are those who do his commandments, is the best one. And the reason why is the parallel that we have in question number 11. I want you to notice how Revelation undoes what happened in Genesis. Did God give Adam and Eve a commandment in Genesis? Yes. Was, were all of the Ten Commandments contained in that one commandment? Remember we studied this in one of our lessons that every commandment was really contained in that one commandment. Did Adam and Eve disobey God? Yes, they disobeyed God. So what did God do with them? He cast them out of the garden. And whom did he place at the gate? He placed angels at the gate. And why were they placed at the gate? So that they would guard what? The entrance to the tree of life. And as a result, Genesis says that what came in? The curse and death. Those two very words are used. So I want you to get the picture here. The picture is God gave Adam and Eve his commandments. They disobeyed the commandments. God cast them out of the garden. He put angels at the gate to ban them from the tree of life. And as a result comes the curse and death. Revelation undoes all of that. Revelation 22 tells us that the saints keep what? The commandments of God. And as a result, the saints are not cast out, but they're allowed what? Into the city. And who are they allowed into the city by? By angels that are at the gates. I hope you read that verse, Revelation 22 and verse 12. 
And as a result, the saints will be able to partake of what? Of the tree of life. And Revelation says that there will be no more curse and there will be no more death. Are you with me? So Revelation undoes what happened in Genesis. It's the antonym of Genesis. And it all has to do with whether we will obey God or not. You see, are you, say, are you saying that we're going to go into the heavenly Jerusalem because we obey God? No. I'm saying that we're going through the gates into the city because God by His grace redeemed us and because we love Him so much, we keep His commandments. It's very different to say that we go in because we keep the commandments than to say that we go in because of the grace of Jesus and as a result, we kept the commandments of God. At the bottom of the page, characteristics of the city's citizens. All the citizens of the city will be what? Will be overcomers. Now let's read this note. It's very important. God now fulfills the promises. When I say now, it's when the New Jerusalem descends. He fulfills the promises he made to the overcomers in the seven churches. Let me just go through this quickly. Do you know that the very promises that Jesus made to those who overcome in the churches are the promises that he fulfills in Revelation 21 and 22? Let me just mention this, and I can't go slow for you to copy it off, uh, but you can do the research yourself. The church of Ephesus, God promises that if they overcome, they'll eat of the tree of life. Is that in Revelation 21 and 22? Eating of the tree of life? Yes. To the church of Smyrna, God says, if you overcome, you will not suffer the second death. Is that a reward in the heavenly city? No second death? Revelation 21 and verse 7 says so, that those in the city do not suffer second death. To Pergamum, Jesus promised, I will give you my new name. In Revelation 22, it says that his name will be on their foreheads. To the church of Thyatira, Jesus promised, you will have, if you overcome, you will have power over the nations. Revelation chapter 22, it says that God's people will be kings, will govern over the nations. The church of Sardis, God promised that if Sardis, those in Sardis who overcame would have white garments and he would not erase their names from the book of life. Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 says that those that are in the city are written in the Lamb's book of life. To the church of Philadelphia, Jesus promised in Revelation 3 verse 12 that if they were faithful, they would have the name New Jerusalem written on their foreheads. And of course, in the book of Revelation, they enter the New Jerusalem. And to the church of Laodicea, Jesus said, to he who overcomes, I will grant to sit on my throne, even as I overcame and sat on my father's throne. And if you read Revelation chapter 22, 3 and 5, it says God's people will sit on the throne with Jesus. In other words, the promises which Jesus made to the church militant, he fulfills to the church triumphant. Now listen to what I'm going to say. Revelation 1 to 3 describes the church in its struggles, as does Revelation 4 to 19. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 describes that same church having gained what? The victory being triumphant. So my question is, were the churches on earth during the tribulation? They must have been. Now let's read the note. God now fulfills the promises he made to the overcomers in the seven churches. To each church, Jesus had said, to he who overcomes, this proves beyond any doubt that the victors in the seven churches went through the turbulent events of Revelation 4 to 19. In fact, the entire book of Revelation was given for the churches. Did you read Revelation 22, verse 16? It says, this is what Jesus says to the churches. Notice that we must overcome as Jesus overcame. And Jesus overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil. Revelation 1 through 3 presents the church militant, that is, at war on earth. Revelation 21 and 22 presents the same church triumphant. In other words, having gained the victory in heaven. So is it important for us to study about the seven churches to see what it means to overcome? Absolutely. 
Let's go to number two. All the citizens of the New Jerusalem will inherit some things. Oh, thank you very much. All the citizens of the New Jerusalem will inherit all things. Isn't that wonderful? Of course, we'll inherit them through Jesus. See, the promises were made to Jesus. And when you join Jesus, you get on the bandwagon. On the heavenly bandwagon. See, through Jesus. Because Jesus recovered everything. When we receive him, we receive everything. So to receive Jesus means to have everything. To reject Jesus means to have nothing. Now, and we will be called what? Sons and daughters of God. It was by accepting Jesus and being baptized that they became sons and daughters of God. Read Galatians 3, 26 to 29. It says there that all who have been baptized have put on Christ. There is no longer any slave or free. There is no longer any Jew or Greek. There is no longer any male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed, and you will inherit all of the promises. So the crucial thing is to receive Jesus and to announce it publicly by being baptized. See, baptism does not save you. What baptism does is it proclaims to the world, I am now a follower of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It proclaims that you are receiving Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you're becoming a son and a daughter of God. Yes? The symbol of baptism in the Old Testament is in the story of Naaman. The symbol of baptism in the Old Testament is the baptism of Israel in the Red Sea. The symbol of baptism in the Old Testament is in the story of the flood. 1 Peter 3 says that. The symbol of baptism in the Old Testament is in the crossing of the Jordan River before Israel entered the Promised Land. Should I continue? <laughs> See, there's a lot about baptism. In the, Old. the story of Naaman is the most extraordinary story on baptism in the whole Bible. This guy who had leprosy. Man! He goes to the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says, go bathe in the river Jordan seven times. And boy, does he ever get mad. You know, he was from, he was from, uh, from Syria. From Damascus. I didn't see any rivers in Damascus. But he said, there's much cleaner rivers in Syria, where I'm from, than that muddy old Jordan River. And, of course, his, his uh, soldiers reason with him. He says, is this such a big thing that the prophet is asking you to do? Go bathe yourself. <laughs> See, sometimes it takes other people to convince people that it's time to get baptized. There's a whole story. See, there's, there's room for a whole sermon on baptism in this story. And then, of course, Naaman, he goes and he dips seven times. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to dip people seven times under the water. The number seven represents totality, perfection, total perfect cleansing. And, you know, he submerged himself seven times. And when he came out the seventh time, the Bible says that he was totally cleansed from his leprosy. Leprosy represents sin. Leprosy, it desensitizes. You know, it, you reach the point where leprosy is so bad that they can cut off your finger and you don't feel it. When it gets real bad. And the Bible says, see, when God does things, he does it well. It says that when Naaman came up the seventh time, his skin was like the skin of a child. Not the skin of an old man. <laughs> the skin of a newborn creature. Because he had buried his leprosy in the waters. Well, so much for baptism. It's exciting. If you haven't been baptized, you think about it. Baptized by immersion. And by the way, some people say, well, I've already been baptized by immersion. Well, the fact is, folks, that the Bible says that when we learn new truths, that we didn't know before. When we come out of Babylon, you know, we're baptized in order to indicate that we're joining the body of Christ which teaches the truth. See, because baptism isn't only joining Jesus, baptism is joining his church. See, there's two meanings to baptism. You're, you're joining Jesus personally, but you're also joining his body, which is the church. We're going to number three. All citizens will have the name of God on their foreheads, and they will see his what? Oh, brothers and sisters, we're going to see his face, face to face with Christ my Savior, face to face. What will it be? 
When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. That's my favorite hymn in the whole hymnal. Ah. Yes. The Bible says so. Let's read the note. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. His name must be written on their foreheads before they get to heaven. Correct? The name represents the character of Jesus. See, in the Bible, the name means character. That's why when your character changes, God changes your name. He says to Jacob, your name will no longer be called Jacob. From now on, your, your character has changed, and so your name will be changed. It will no longer be called Jacob, supplanter. It will be called Israel, prince of God. The note of number three. Whoever has our mind has us. In this world, we see the face of God only by reading his word and hearing his voice, right? But when we enter the gates into the city, we will no longer live by faith, but by sight. When Jesus comes, we shall see him as he is. And if we have this hope in us, we must purify ourselves, even as Jesus is pure. In other words, we must cleanse ourselves now from sin. Number four. All the citizens of the New Jerusalem will be God's what? God's servants. By the way, the Greek word servant there is the Greek word latriwo, where we get our word idolatriwo from. Idolatry. Let me ask you, is it okay to idolize God? <laughs> yes? Of course! What this is saying, it's not only saying that we're going to serve God, it's saying that we are going to idolize God. Because we have a right to idolize God. God can be our idol. He has to be the supreme focus of our attention. And the only one who has the supreme focus of our attention. So we're going to be his servants. Yes. But we're going to worship him. The word latuo is translated also in other places of the New Testament. Worship him. Number five. All citizens of the New Jerusalem will be not only Sabbath keepers, but what? Commandment keepers. Think that's a good idea? How many of you would like to have murderers in heaven? How many of you would like to have adulterers in heaven? How many of you would like to have liars in heaven? If we're going to overcome those things, where do we overcome them? Jesus is going to change us on the way to heaven, right? If he changes us, why doesn't he just change everybody? Those things must be overcome now. To he who overcomes, the Bible says. We must reflect the character of Jesus now. Number six. All citizens of the New Jerusalem will be morally clean because nothing which what? Which defiles shall enter the city. No R.J.R. Reynolds Tobacco Company. No cigarettes. No alcohol. No pollution. No factories. No acid rain. None of those things. Because nothing impure will enter there. Let's read the note. Psalm 15 and 24 tell us who will be there. Those who have what? Clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, they are pure in thought and what? In action. In Hebrews 12, 29, we are told that God is a consuming fire. Now listen to this. The wicked will not burn forever, but they will be burned with everlasting fire because God is an everlasting fire. It's the fire, the everlasting fire that burns them up. Never does the Bible say that they're burning and burning and burning and burning forever. The fire is everlasting because God is an everlasting fire. Are you with me? See, people have misunderstood everlasting fire. They think that everlasting fire... Let me ask you, is God an everlasting fire everlastingly? <laughs> Sorry about the redundance. God is an everlasting fire everlastingly, right? Does that mean that what he's going to consume is going to exist forever? No, it's the fire that's everlasting. And God is an everlasting fire. So the wicked will be destroyed with everlasting fire because God is an everlasting fire. Are you understanding my point? 
In fact, Isaiah 33, 14 asks the question, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? The answer is surprising. Who's going to live in the everlasting fire? He who walks righteously. He who despises the gain of oppression. In other words, you take advantage of people to make a to, to gain. Who gestures his hands, refusing bribes. In other words, no way. Push away bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed. And shuts his eyes from seeing evil. That's what the city is going to be like, filled with people like that. A place of absolute bliss. God's people will never experience what? Hunger or thirst. Jesus will what? Oh, I love this. Jesus will shepherd his people and lead them to living fountains of waters. And now notice this. And God himself will take away his handkerchief. Will take out his handkerchief. Will take out his Kleenex. And wipe away what? All tears from their eyes. It is God who is going to wipe away the tears. Praise the Lord. So if you cry on this earth, don't worry. Because your sorrow will soon be turned to joy. Number two. Animals in the coming kingdom will not hurt or destroy in all God's holy mountain. The Bible says that the lion is going to sit with the lamb. It says that children are going to play with snakes. Have mercy. Isn't that wonderful? And all the animals will be vegetarians as they were at the beginning because there will be no death. So where do we learn to be vegetarians? You know, people who don't learn here when they get to heaven and they see that wonderful table with pomegranates and almonds and, and manna and all those goodies are going to say, Lord, no McDonald's! <laughs> yeah. Factory of death. Number three. There will be no physical defects in the coming kingdom. The blind will see. The deaf will. The lame will leap. It doesn't say walk. It says leap. And the dumb will speak and sing. Oh, brothers and sisters. So the people, the people who have physical defects, all those physical defects are going to disappear. Number four. There will be no wastelands or wilderness. No Sahara Desert. No Mojave Desert. A little bit closer. In the earth made new. In fact, the desert will what? Rejoice. Will rejoice and blossom as the what? As the rose. Number five. Death will be what? Swallowed up. And the saved will say, this is our God. We have waited for him. And he will what? And he will save us. God's people will be given bodies which will be like the body of the resurrected Christ. He will fashion our bodies to be like his glorious body. These bodies will be what? Incorruptible and immortal. Never to die. Let's read the note. The bodies of the redeemed will be real flesh and blood bodies, but untainted by corruption and mortality. 1 Corinthians 15.50 has been misunderstood. It says their flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. And so some people say, see, when we get to heaven, we'll have no flesh and blood. We'll be like ghosts. But the Apostle Paul means when he says that flesh and blood will not inherit uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's simply saying that this sinful, corruptible body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
because the second part of the verse says, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, in a, uh, incorruption rather, inherit, uh, how is it that it goes? <laughs> it, okay, let's go back to the beginning. It says, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit what? Incorruption. In other words, flesh and blood means our life in our present what? Corruptible state. Our body in a corruptible state. It's not saying that we're not going to have flesh and blood. I hope you read uh, Acts 13, 34, and 37. The Greek philosophers thought that the body was an encumbrance. As they saw time deteriorate and wear out the body, they reached the conclusion that the body is evil and only the soul is good. The problem is they did not have the revelation that we have in the Bible. They did not realize that time corrupts the body because of sin, not because the body is inherently evil. See, the problem is not that the body is evil. Let me ask you, did Adam have flesh and blood when he was created? If he had not eaten, eaten of the tree, would that body have lived forever? So is the problem with the body or is the problem with sin? The problem is with sin, folks. There's no problem having a body with flesh and bones. Jesus has a body with flesh and bones in heaven now, and he'll die no more, according to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Did Jesus have a real body when he resurrected? Yeah. Of course he did. The Bible says he did. Jesus says, look, a ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Now, in other words, the Greek perspective is wrong. Hebrew perspective is right. Okay, let's go to number seven. Let's go more quickly. Our future home will be a place of unparalleled what? Joy. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. Notice the emphasis on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Notice the number of times that it speaks about joy and gladness and happiness. That's what heaven is going to be like. Number eight. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Notice the result of this in God's own words. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a as a rejoicing and her people a joy I will rejoice in Jerusalem and uh, couldn't they have just said it once <laughs> I guess it's going to be a place of joy I will rejoice in my people the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard and in her nor the voice of crying and the song which the redeemed will sing is what Song of Moses and the what? And the Lamb. Now notice that uh, it is finished is spoken four times in history. The very beginning of history before sin entered the world, God what? Finished his work of creation. When Jesus brought his work of redemption to a close, he said it is finished. And interestingly, after he created, he finished and then he rested the seventh day when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he rested in the tomb the seventh day. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the Redeemer did what the Creator did because the Creator is the Redeemer. When the seven last plagues have been poured out and God's people have been delivered, that is those who have the seal of God. What is the seal of God? That's Holy Sabbath. God's voice is heard saying what? It is done. In other words, the persecution and oppression of my people is finished. Number four, when sin has been obliterated from the universe, God's voice will be heard saying what? It is done. In other words, sin is finished forever and ever. Now we come to the most important part of the whole lesson. Oh, I want to see that city with foundations and pearl gates and gold and precious stones and uh, the tree of life and all of the, the water. I want to taste that water. Listen, even if there was nothing of that, it would still be worthwhile being there. 
because of who is there. Now, let's notice who is there. Number one, the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be real places with real people. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he had a body composed of hands and what? Feet, as well as flesh and bones. So let me ask you, does Jesus now in heaven have flesh and bones? Does Jesus have hands and feet? Must Jesus be occupying a space right now? Sure. So if you want to know whether heaven is real, just ask whether Jesus is real. If Jesus is real, heaven is real because Jesus is there. Number two, Jesus encouraged Thomas to place his finger in his hands and in his side and then told him not to be what? Unbelieving. In other words, don't have a lack of faith. Number three, the Apostle Paul explains that because the children have partaken in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same. As Jesus was departing for heaven, an angel assured the disciples, this same Jesus, the Jesus that has flesh and bones, the Jesus that has hands and feet, the real Jesus, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So are, is everybody going to see him? Yes. Number five. Though we will enjoy regathering with the dead in Christ, imagine meeting Moses and Elijah. Of course, he didn't die. And Enoch and Noah. Wow! Do those fellows have a story to tell? And Esther. We don't want to leave the ladies out. And Ruth. <laughs> and Mary. Oh, wow. Privilege of talking to them. Getting acquainted with them. And we'll have forever to do it. But notice. Though we will enjoy regathering with the dead in Christ, even our relatives who died in Jesus, the greatest joy of heaven will be to bask in the everlasting fellowship with Jesus. After speaking about the coming of Jesus, the Apostle Paul exclaimed, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. See, that's the focus. After talking about the resurrection and the dead in Christ uh, arising and the living being transformed and caught up into the air, it says, the Apostle Paul says, but the point is, we shall ever be with the Lord. Number six. The main purpose of the coming of Jesus is so that, so that where he is, we what? We may be also. He is being with Jesus. And in fact, do you know the name of the new Jerusalem is going to be changed? The name of the new Jerusalem will be, the Lord is there. In what city do you live? In the Lord is there. See, that's what the important thing about the New Jerusalem. Fellowship with Jesus. But of course, if we're going to have fellowship with him there, we must first have fellowship with him here. Number eight. Revelation 21 and 22 repeatedly emphasize that God himself will be with his people. In fact, the exact translation of Revelation 22, 3 is, and he, God with them, that is Emmanuel, will be there God. Number nine. Psalm 1611, David says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of what? Of joy. At your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. Notice, in your presence and at your right side. In other words, the key is once again being with whom? Being with Jesus. That's what, heaven is Jesus. And if there was no, no other thing, some people are pretty materialistic when they think about heaven because they're thinking about the, the gold street and they're thinking about the gates of pearl and the foundations of precious stones. All that is only the dessert. Jesus is the main course. The commemorative sign. The redeemed will go to the city from what? From month to month. And from Sabbath to Sabbath to honor the Lord in Jerusalem. The monthly trip 
will be to eat from the tree of life. And the weekly trip will be to worship Jesus on his holy Sabbath. Thus the Sabbath will commemorate creation because Jesus rested from his works of creation. It will commemorate redemption because after Jesus said it is finished, he rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. It will commemorate deliverance because God's people had the seal of God, which is the Sabbath, which protected them in the final crisis. And it will be a sign of recreation because we will keep it throughout eternity. The Sabbath of the New Earth denotes that it will be a concrete place in space and time. Eternity is not timelessness. See, that's, that's the, the Buddhist idea. That, that uh, you know, going after you die, you go to a realm where there's no time and no space. Timelessness and spacelessness. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches that we will live in a realm where there is endless time. Is there a difference between timelessness and endless time? A whole world of difference. And notice, there will be months in the new earth as well as a weekly cycle. Correct? This indicates that Jesus will create this world in six days and will rest on the seventh day. And we've talked about this before. Number two. 1 Corinthians 2.9 explains that I has not seen nor ear heard nor even entered the what? The heart or the imagination of man. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. Are you going to miss out? I hope not. It's too good to miss. God makes a call. Let's go to our last section. If we receive Jesus, we will what? We will inherit all things. Everything that now belongs to Donald Trump will be mine. Everything that now belongs to Ted Turner will be ours. Because we will inherit all things through Jesus. You see, I want to put this so that you understand what we're talking about. See, here we have God the Father, and here we have Jesus. The only one who is truly the Son of God is Jesus. All of the rest of us are children of wrath, because we're sinners. We have no right to claim to be children of God. But here's the beautiful thing, see? We cannot have direct access to God, because we're sinners. So what we do is we receive Jesus. And when I receive Jesus... I become a brother of Jesus and because we're brothers, we have the same father. Are you with me? In other words, it's not that I'm a son of God directly. I'm always a son of God because I become a brother or sister of Jesus by receiving Jesus and then because Jesus is the son of God, we can claim the same father. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way, folks, other than through Jesus. <coughs> Number two, we must lay up treasures in heaven. How do you send your money to the heavenly bank? By putting it where I can reach people with this message. See, the offerings that you've given here, that, is going, that goes to our evangelism fund so that we can do future seminars like this so that people can know these things. Number three, we should make the choice which Moses made. He could have been the next pharaoh of Egypt. All of the power, all of the glory, all of the gold, all of the pyramids, and all of the honor. But he chose to go into the desert with a bunch of critical people for 40 years and he learned to be the meekest man on earth he preferred to suffer for a season 
And you know what? If Moses had chosen to stay in Egypt, he would now be a mummy in the basement of the British Museum. <laughs> or if he's lucky, he would still be in an undisturbed pyramid of Egypt. But Moses is now in heaven because he made the right choice. Number four, we must ever remember that this is one of those little mistakes. That that which, <laughs> that the things, it should be, that the things which are not seen are more real than those which are what? Seen. It, see, this is totally absurd for the, for the postmodern mind. Blows them away. You're telling me that what I can't see is more real than what I can see? That's exactly what the Bible says. Heaven is more real than what we have on this earth because all that we have on this earth is going to burn up. Our real inheritance is there. And we should live like we believe it. Number five, ever keep in mind that our citizenship is where? In heaven. God has sent us an invitation. Will we choose to be there? Don't miss it for anything in the world because it's going to be spectacular. Remember that absence plus time can make the heart grow fonder or colder. When you're absent from somebody and the period of time extends itself, it can cause the love to grow fonder or it can cause the love to grow colder. And I believe that in a great degree, Christians today, their love for Christ has grown cold. As it says in Matthew chapter 24, the Christian church has lost its first love according to Revelation chapter 2. Nothing in this world is lasting. The world is what? The world is passing away. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.